Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. All right, so good morning. Today I have on me with the podcast, Jill Carlton. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Amanda. It's so great to see you. It's great to see you too. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to getting our listeners to hear more about you and a lot of the things you've been up to in your career and since your, I'll say, paid career has ended. Oh, thank you so much. It's gl- I'm glad we're finally, uh, finally found a time. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So let's get started. Can you tell our listeners about where you went to military college and when and what you studied? Yeah, I went to RMC in Kingston from 83 to 87, and I graduated with a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Commerce. Excellent. And what was your military occupation? My military occupation was uh, naval logistics throughout my entire time in the military. Okay. And so did you end up doing the finance side of logistics or supply so, with your commerce well, background? So, <laughs> so naval, naval logistics, we sort of do everything, supply and finance and a smattering of transport as it applies to ships or the Navy and food services. So um, okay. you, get the whole, you get the whole bargoon. <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle is uh, oh, yeah. I feel like my mom used to say. <laughs> yeah. Very good. And then what do you do today to fill your days? My days today are filled with volunteer work. I'm fully retired. I have been since 2018. And um, I volunteer primarily with organizations related to peer support, mentoring, or mental health, and mental health veterans in particular. That's awesome. Um, plus, and- the, plus the Alumni Association. Yeah, right. And I think when uh, when you and I first started talking, you were president of the Alumni Association. Yes. The first, yeah. the first president of the combined association. You know, that we, right? we yes, we still ask ourselves who in their who in their logical minds would merge two organizations during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, we were on a we were on a schedule and it made sense. And um Wow, like that was just a ride. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Let's go back a little bit in time before we come mm-hmm. to that. Can you tell our listeners about what prompted you to go to military college in the first place? Yeah, so I I, I like to jokingly tell people it was a bit of a dare because <laughs> I had two friends that went to the recruiting center and then came back and sort of said, oh, you'd never get accepted. Um, and that's mm-hmm. all it really took. I was like, yep. oh, yeah, really? But I was also looking for a challenge, I think. You know, I had sort of coasted in some ways through high school, and I was looking for something that would be different and be complicated. You know, it's fair to say I got that wish. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. I can <laughs> Little imagine. did I realize. Yes. Yep, yep. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because I didn't really know anything about the military. My grandfather had served, but nobody in my immediate family um you know, my parents weren't in the military, so I was quite naive about mm. um, what I was doing. But I can also be a little headstrong when I decide on a course of action. So, you know, it happened. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I feel like I can empathize and uh, oh maybe, yeah, uh, see myself in that as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. 
quite headstrong. <laughs> I didn't see any smoke go up behind you in the in the pictures. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's funny because uh, when I first mentioned going to military college, I think my family were sort of like, what? Like you? <laughs> well, I was like, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, Just so I, I had that same reaction. And I remember getting the call from the recruiting center saying I'd been accepted to RMC or was being an offer, given an offer. And my parents were at the local uh, racket club paying squash. And I called and and I, it was like seven o'clock at night. I called them and said, and had them paged. And when they came to the phone, of course, they thought it was an emergency. And I was like, <laughs> I got a call from the recruiting center. And I told them, yes. And they, were, they were shocked. They were like, do you want to talk about this? I said, no, it's done. <laughs> Mine was the opposite. They uh, oh, yeah? they called the house and I was at school. So my mom answered. So she called the school and I had to phone oh, back. Wow. I had to phone back home to find out what was going on. And she was oh, like, that's... they offered you something called Sealy. Do you know what that is? And I don't even remember if I knew what it was, but it was mm-hmm. Air Force. So I was like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your military career. You know, what mm-hmm. what did that sort of look like for you? You know, graduated in 87. Were you able mm-hmm. to go on to ship right away or were they open to women and before 1989 no. or 90? They weren't open to women. Um there was a trial there, yeah. there was a trial going on, but it was just the trial. And um, so my first posting was actually to NDHQ. And I had a great job in Ottawa. And um, the next year in 88 was when, you know, women went, started going to other types of employment in the military. I already had a Navy uniform. So we had just mm. gone to the three uniforms after, as oh. I graduated from RMC. Um, right. So I'm trying to remember, but I think I got my Navy uniform when I was in Ottawa already, I don't think I had it at grad, but memory could be wrong. So I had done the training. I think everybody knew it was probably coming. So I had done all the sea log training and I was waiting. So I went to a ship, I went to HMCS Preserver in 89 for a year, um, which would be the normal sort of training progression for a naval logistics officer and did my year training on board the ship um, passed my qualification board, which is, you know, the, the hallmark of every naval officer's yes. uh, time. You must pass a board chaired by a ship's captain. I did my one year. I went back ashore to a job for a few years, had a kid, had another kid, and, <laughs> and then got posted back to uh, HMCS Terra Nova in, um, in 1995. I have to do the math here. Yeah, yeah. 95, um, which was great. But all told, I was in Halifax or the Halifax area from 1989 to 19 to 2000. I'm getting my decades in oh, okay. mixed up. So I was there for 11 years, which was great. You know, all different jobs and jobs changing, you know, every two years or less, but in the same geographic area, which was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. So our time definitely overlapped because I was there from... You know, yeah. when I graduated and finished my training in 95 until, until 2000, 2001 actually is when I left the area, but I left the military in 99. So yeah, we must oh, yeah. have passed in a wardroom or, or a mess. Oh, somewhere. for sure. For sure. <laughs> it's funny to think that, right? 2000, did you leave the Halifax area and go somewhere else? I did. Or? 
I did. I was fortunate enough to um, get sponsored to do my MBA for two years. So I did that at St. Mary's my last two years Mm. in Halifax. And, you know, Naval Logistics, it's almost always Naval Logistics Officer plus MBA equals a finance job in Ottawa. So, you know, my previous experience, with the exception of working on ships, had been primarily, you know, logistics, like hardcore supply Mm. type stuff and support to deployed ops. And then all of a sudden, I was um, thrown into not just a finance world, but a heavy-duty accounting world. So oh. it was at the time that um, D&D and the CAF were implementing accrual accounting. And um, I got posted into that organization to start getting my first, I would say, taste of business accounting as opposed to the way the government was doing accounting. So mm. on an accrual basis and recognizing assets and, and inventory on the balance sheet and all of that good stuff. Oh, okay. um, just, and just at the beginning, I mean, it's it's been a long process that's still being refined because if you think about how many, how much inventory and how many assets national yeah. defense has, like every vehicle, every ship, and the process to come up with a, a value you know, first to calculate the total value and then to age them to get them on the balance sheet and the right valuation. It was really complex. And um, so, I mean, there's a challenge if I was looking for a challenge, Um, you know, (laughs) totally changing the way my brain thinks, right? Because it's a different way of thinking about assets, about the value of them, as opposed to how they work and whether they need repair parts. And I think as logistics (laughs) officers, we get trained to look at one aspect or the other and it's not until later in our careers where you start to put the bigger picture together and understand that operations uh you know fuel and speed of a ship for instance makes a difference on how fast you can travel so whether the ship can join a task group for instance and and then planning port visits so you you start to think about it when you're posted to a ship but then you get you know as you go more senior get more senior in roles, the complexity and starting to put these really difficult concepts together. So, you know, you understand that, I don't know, in the case of that role, finance, you know, it was accounting and it was the value of it, but that value and the accounting book value could also be used to evaluate, you know, how to access information around how long the ship's been in service or the aircraft, whether it's fully amortized on the books, how old they are, and things like that. So you start to combine different types of concepts. And I found that job fascinating, but very frustrating, Mm -hmm. very challenging. You know, we are sort of, as another boss of mine who will laugh when he hears this, um, will say it's like it was like pushing us wet spaghetti noodle up a hill. Like, ah, yes. (laughs) you know, you could push and you'd make progress, but the noodle would flop over and trying to implement a project that requires such significant change is really difficult, right? As we see these days, right? So (laughs) that's a, my example is a very technical skills oriented, but you have to win the hearts and minds of the whole department if you want it to work right. And I think you see that in every change management effort, whether it's a system implement or, you know, a a system platform implementation or culture change or people change or changing rules dramatically. It's hard work to bring people along on the change. So that was a very revealing role for me. It was revealing to me on, you know, I'd been involved in change before, but not to that magnitude, right? Right. So seeing how 
you have to communicate and over-communicate and over-communicate again. It sounds so simple now, but it was a major revelation to me because I hadn't worked. Um, well, I had worked in NDHQ, but I hadn't worked on a project that had such a grand scope, right? So, right. Yeah. Sorry. No, Did I bring you down okay. a rabbit hole? No, no, we, it's all good. We, we, we both seem to visit these rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. No, so, no, it's, um, well, I, I mean, it strikes me that that has a lot of parallels to some of the work you've done since since leaving the military in terms of change management. And I mean, that must have been a big part of <laughs> the work with the Alumni Association, I would imagine. Oh, but yes. I don't know yeah. all of the other things that you've been involved with. Yeah, and so how that, has that sort of carried through? Yeah, so one of the efforts I'm involved in um, is Mental Health Commission of Canada runs a program called the SPARC program, which is, uh, it's called an I2I program. It's knowledge translation. And I2I stands for Innovation to Implementation. So people apply to do this program, and basically it's a eight-module program where you take a mental health idea and develop it. So I did the program for a project I was involved in, and then I became a mentor for that program. So mentoring people who are um, who have these projects and want you know a framework around what they're doing to get to the implementation stage. And it was great because um, last week we just had our final session for the last cohort I was involved in. And these people do the eight sessions, are four in class, four mentoring, and then they work on their project, and we check in a month, three months, six months, and then 12 okay. months, and the whole program's 12 months. So we just had our final 12-month thing. And one of the projects that was in my group was this fellow who was working on a project to implement a system for monitoring outpatients and their wellness once they've come out of an, a residential program. So... When And this guy is like super whiz, like he arrived in the program and he already had a project, right? Mm -hmm. So he already, he, he was, he already had it there, but he was just running it through. He knew more than any of us combined. <laughs> but when we were going through his project at the beginning, one of the things we noticed was that as he identified who his stakeholders were and who his champions could be within his organization, he um, didn't really think about the the different stakeholders, so like doctors or the patient, well, doctors, but the board of directors, for instance, of his organization. Mm -hmm. And when we when we had chatted as a group, we sort of said, you know, you have people that you need to influence to make this change because they need the momentum to understand how it'll help them do their job differently, right? right. And the board needs to know, you know, why you want this money and what the, basically what the return of investment is on their submission, you know, their, yeah. their money that they've invested in this project. He just thought that was a novel idea because he had a very mm. scientific mind. He hadn't thought of that persuasion change management piece. Right. And so he was one of the groups. He did a fabulous job. And um, when he did his presentation to the rest of us, his final update last week, he said the biggest thing he learned was how much time you need to send with senior stakeholders and influencers to make sure that they are in line and with what's the changes. He said that he had changed his approach after we had talked about it and then realized as he started to do a little bit of networking and making sure he got into the right offices to sort of pre-brief what he was going to 
do right. and, you know, get that discussion going. Um, it made all the difference in the world for him and how they're implementing. So, you know, it's, it's really the same thing, right? It's helping yeah. people develop programs for change management. And thank you, because I hadn't seen that connection until you asked. Ah. <laughs> I was like, oh, hang on a second. So that's exciting. Resilience Plus is another program I'm involved is, with. It's a program at the two colleges in Kingston and St. Jean. And um, it's sort of two-faceted. So Resilience Plus has some senior ambassadors, which are all cadets. And then it has senior team members, which is primarily faculty or interested staff at the colleges. But also we have four volunteers from outside the faculty and staff who are senior team members, and I'm one of them. So there's there's that aspect. And when you become a senior team member, you basically sign on to do one of five or six things. It could be coaching, mentoring, supervising, um, and initiative, because the officer cadets are doing resilience initiatives throughout the college um, and cadet wing. So you could offer to supervise one. And then there's also learn how to be a trainer for the anti-fragile leadership resilience training that okay. has been developed for them to take. So um, that piece is wonderful. So there's a massive change management yeah. project, right? And learning about character strengths um, and what actions are associated with character strengths and, you know, how to, how to describe those strengths and then what they look like, basically, right? And then reinforcing that in, within the cadet wing. It's an absolutely, like, I'm, I'm just beginning to become involved with it. So I don't, I'm, I'm just learning. So we're hoping to start the mentorship program. Right now, the mentors are all internal mentors, like internal to the faculty. Okay. Um, so we're in the process of developing a screening, um, a screening process for volunteers. And I think we're hoping alumni for vol volunteers to sign up once we're ready to receive them and say, I want to be a senior team member. And then, you know, I want to become a member when that's opened up, uh, a mentor, sorry. So that's really, like, I find that fascinating. And the program held a soiree at Kingston several weeks ago, and it was amazing. So, you know, the CDS and his chief mm -hmm. came. I saw some pictures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, Major General O'Reilly came. The commandants were there. The um, chief warrant officers, the Canadian Forces chief warrant officer was there. Like uh, the um, CMP chief warrant officer was there along with deputy CMP. So it was just they got exposed to all these different resilience initiatives and how they take place and got to ask questions about them and see how, and also to participate in a couple of them while okay. they were there, along with 70 officer cadets from the colleges. So that is starting to push it out and communicate it to the cadets. And, you know, as they continue to go through the modules each year and learn more about this, you know, that all feeds into the broader change management in the Canadian Armed Forces when they graduate. Right. So that is pretty exciting. That is pretty yeah. exciting. I remember my very first podcast was with Kate Armstrong. And one mm -hmm. of the things that she thought that we had the opportunity to do within the Canadian military was to affect change by starting at the military colleges because you're training the future leaders of the Canadian Armed Forces and what better place to start you know, your change management 
that, you know, yes, it, it's maybe slower because, you know, ideally <laughs> you'd want things changing, but if you start yeah. from both ends, hopefully you could meet in the middle, right? Is that a little bit yeah. of the thinking or? I, I think so. I think so. I'm not sure where the, like, where the discussion is about bringing it outside the colleges mm-hmm. or if it's just, you know, like some, some of the resilience initiatives can be brought outside the colleges, no problem. Like, I think lots of people will do these either team building or positive psychology or hope, hopeful exercises with both military and civilian staff. So things to bring people together and to give them recognition and feedback and mm-hmm. also to talk to somehow um, show recognition for coworkers, for instance. And there's different ways. And some of that is part of what some of the um, initiatives are. They're just focused towards which of the resilient and character strength behaviors they're seeing, right? Right. So, so, so some of these happen already, and I think some of them can go outside easily, and they'll just these ideas will spread as people go to go to their postings. The other piece, the modules with the teaching of the um, various aspects of character and resilience and all this, I think we have plans that are huge that are you know world domination but whether (laughs) whether that ever gets approved and actually happens that's um you know that's another story but I think we're trying to work towards you know conquer the colleges first and then yeah um hopefully it'll spread right like I'd like to see everything in CDA spread um to, to all of CDA uh the um defense military academy or sorry, Canadian Defense Defense. Academy. Um, But, um, you know, I'm not the commander of CDA, so we'd have to talk to General O'Reilly about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, just, what, two weeks ago, because, you know, we're recording this shortly, like a week after Remembrance Day. um, We, you know, in my day job at at GM, we'd had a couple of guest speakers in um, for Remembrance Week, and one of them Mm -hmm. was the uh, commander of the local Ontario tank uh, regiment, the Ontario's. And, you know, he had done an excellent speech where he was sort of equating the military ethos to GM's behaviors to GM behaviors mm-hmm. and values. And I thought it was a really interesting exercise because it's sort of what you're just talking about, you know, with recognition and things like that remind me of what we do at GM, which is we have this recognition system where, you know, you can recognize people with points, which, you know, they can end up buying mm-hmm. things with, but you can also mm-hmm. just recognize them without points. And all of the recognitions are based on one of our seven behaviors. And, yeah. you know, so you're reinforcing that positive, you know, it, it, it exactly. does sound to me a lot like positive psychology and what you're describing. It is. That sounds exactly like it. And, you know, we're going through a similar exercise. So within the Alumni Association, if I put my other hat on, yeah, um, we're going through the exercise. Um, Michelle Mullen, who who you may know, I'm not sure. She's she's one of our board directors. She's another um, Mill Call graduate, okay. um, closer to your age than mine. Um, she um, she's working through, and and she's actually incidentally chairing our steering committee, which is developing what our board response will be to the art oh, yes. report. And yes. she's just amazing. Anyway, so she has gone through a mapping process of comparing truth, duty, valor 
mm. to um, Trusted to Serve. Oh, okay. So I had previously done it and done just around Trusted to Serve and, and talking about why it's important for us as alumni to understand what these values are, what these statements around ethics mean. Because if we want to support the colleges, as you know, most of us do, and if we want to also be relevant as an alumni body to the cadets, so they look at us and say, yeah, that's behavior I want to mimic, right? They right. See us in it. So why is it important for us to understand as veterans or still serving what's happening at the colleges and, and how this impacts us? And so we did that mapping process. Within the Resilience Plus program, they're going through a mapping process of the VIA Institute character strengths and comparing those and figuring out how they fit into the Canadian Forces ethics statement. Um, so there's a lot of mapping going on. It's all related. I think mm -hmm. we're going to end up with the three-way mapping, but at the end of the day, try and show people how this resilience training, which really, in my in my estimation, starts with life skills, right? Understanding what yeah. the strengths are and basic. And how does it look? What does this strength look like when you have this interaction with a fellow officer cadet, is it, um, you know, what are you showing and how are you showing it? Or or are you maybe not showing a strength when you do that action, right? And those kinds right. of conversations, it teaches them those. And, you know, I have to say, if I think back to my own time at RMC, I, I was a struggling officer cadet. I really was. I have an identical twin sister. Um, she mm. and I had always been friends. I never had to learn how to be a friend because, or to find a friend because I had a friend. You know, I, I've right. always had my sister. I still have her. So, you know, leaving a high school where, you know, I was fairly successful and then going to a military environment I knew nothing about with people that I honestly didn't really know how to make friends or how to be a good friend, I would say. So it was a struggle. Now, in our discussions around the Resilience Plus program, Dr. Sharif and I have talked about the fact that some people go to Resilience Plus because they're just, you know, they're attracted to doing that kind of activity. But there are some people who get into it who are sort of like I was, you know, 40 years ago, not, not getting it, not fitting in, mm. not necessarily being successful in RMC terms, I would say, which is, which is tough because everybody who goes there is everyone goes right? there has been so, successful before so, they arrived you know, right <laughs> and uh, you know i remember thinking if i'm at the bottom of the pack that doesn't mean i'm bad but in the culture that existed then it was bad believe me right. there were yeah. there were chats you know if my former squadron commanders ever hear this they'll be saying oh yeah i remember her <laughs> um with with the eye roll so you know if that had been in place i think when i had gone to mill call um i think that you know, having that that basic guidance and group where people could supervise what I was working on or give me a, a little nudge would have been so helpful. Right. So helpful. I think one of the things that, like when we go to the recruiting center, whether we know what we're doing or not, I'm not sure how many of us at age 17 or 16 or 18 really understand how much our service will change us no matter how long it is or how short it is. It, yeah. it changes us um, in, in marvelous ways, but it can also um, be a real challenge and, and be really difficult. And 
I'm not sure people, a lot of people really understand that. They think of yeah. it as a different, they, they don't really know. Maybe the military is more in the news these days. And of course, we have a lot better communication or faster communication, more information is available. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to say the kids, they're not kids, the young officer cadets arriving at the colleges know more now. But some of the structures that I think that older, those of us who are older grew up with, um, that gave us some formal structure and and development don't necessarily exist anymore. So, you know, schools are not as formal online learning. You know, there's just, there's yeah. different structures. So they may arrive, I think they arrive with a different set of skill sets that that we yeah. arrived, then, then we arrived with, and, you know, um, so adjusting to that and understanding who's arriving, what their background is. I mean, they can all work computers and phones like whizzes, mm-hmm. but um, other things that may be essential for them to know how to do, they might not know how to do. Um, you know, most of them have never written a check, for instance. I but know. They might have to write. <laughs> they might not a, know a how to address the envelope, right? <laughs> I know. So, so you know, it sounds funny to say these things, but you know, some of them arrive missing these skill sets because they're not necessarily needed other places anymore, or they're not yeah. easily taught. This piece, I think, provides them with a peer support system. Um, not a formal one, but that mm-hmm. informal peer support where you you are comfortable enough that you can talk to people and say, "Hey, hey, what do you think about this?" or "Should I talk to somebody about this?" Just having that person to bounce ideas off as a peer. But for the you know for the ones that aren't too sure, it can help them. It can help them find a place to belong and then to maybe learn what comes more naturally or more quickly to others. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know. Of all the cadets involved, cadets, officer cadets, and naval cadets involved in the program right now, they're just, they're amazing. They're well-spoken, they're articulate, they're delightful, they're polite, they're smart, they're motivated. Holy mackerel. I don't remember being like that. And maybe it's just different when you look at it from the other side. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I can't imagine ever having that much energy. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but they really are. Like I, I look at them and I think, man, I like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't speak like that in front of a crowd. Mm, and yet, you yeah. know, our our senior ambassador, who's a fourth year officer cadet, Courtney Latour, she um, stands up and introduces introduced the whole soiree in front of the CDS. Right. You know, so nerves of steel, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. Anyway. Anyway, so um, I I really find that that program um, is helpful. And I, you know, I look at it and I think, yeah, I mean, it's not the solution for everybody, but I think it would have helped me. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to loop us back around to your military service. When you were deciding to leave the military or to retire, Mm -hmm. was it a, a conscious decision? Like I'm ready to retire. Was it? Hey, it's just the end of my service, and so I'm retiring. Like, how did that sort of decision come about for you? And I ask this question because sometimes it can help others who are, you know, in a similar mm-hmm. spot in their careers to think about it. So I had close to 22 years in when I got out, including my time in Kingston. And um, 
I was on what we called then a period of retention. So mm-hmm. I was on, I was permanently categorized medically. Um, oh, okay. So, and I was really not happy with that at the time. I felt, I would say, I just felt like I was being forced out, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I felt that I was still able to work that if I did a civilian job, it would be almost identical to what I was doing, which was basically being a finance finance staff officer. So I took the period of retention and, you know, I was very, I was happy doing that. And um, I don't know if I even got past the first year of my period of retention, but I was frustrated because I saw, I started to see my peers that I had done training with get um, promoted, right? Right. And it, like, it was frustrating because I was, working hard, um, wanted to get ahead. And I knew that they were now further ahead. Like it was, right. I don't tend to think of myself as a competitive person, but I think in situations like that, like I was really frustrated. Um, so I got out, like I, um, there was a situation where I saw one particular person, um, and I think a lot of us go in this, see these things happen. You see one person promoted where you just think I can't I, I just can't anymore. Um, I had talked to a few people within the finance world who were hire, hiring financial officers and had a lot of vacant positions, and I was offered a position. So I put in my 30 days release, and I was not happy. I was not happy. My husband and I talked it over at the time, and um, I think what he saw, and I agreed with him, was that I was so frustrated with it and I could try and hang on and fight it for as long as I wanted to, but it was going to have a, it was, it was all consuming for me and it was going to have an impact on our, on the kids, right? My, my boys around that time. So this is around 2005. My boys were young teenager, pre-teenager. We had managed to keep them. They were going into grade one and grade three when we moved to Ottawa in 2000 and they were still at the same school. And um, between my frustration and, you know, how focused I was on, you know, trying to do something that wasn't going to happen, which was stay in the military, I got out and I had the best bet for a job on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got out, I settled, got a public service job working at D&D and, um, you know, there I stayed. Never really moved again until this a couple of years ago. Um, My kids went to school the whole time. Um, you know, there were a lot of pluses about it. I had several great jobs as a public servant. None of them were jobs that I could have, or roles that I would have been offered if I was in the military. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in retrospect, um, it sounds trite, but it really was one door closing and another door opening because yeah. um, there were so many different opportunities I had working as a public servant that were honestly where I developed um, the interest I have and the knowledge I have in non-public organizations and governance and, um, you know, uh, fiduciary duty and boards of directors and all of that stuff I was able to develop after I got out of the military. Mm-hmm. And between that and my own medical um, situation, that sort of led me to a lot of the work I do now. You know, my my jobs in the... Um, in the public service were just fascinating. But it did take me, you know, I retired in from the military in 2005. Um, so almost 20 years. It has taken me almost that long to realize that um, 
for whatever reason. And like, even if I had continued to fight getting out of the military um, on a medical release, I think that once you go through that fight, your your respect for the organization and mm. sort of for 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 the uh, for the cogs and the wheel just turning and you know churning people in and churning out, which is how it honestly felt. Once you go through a situation where you really feel like you're underappreciated by either the mm. chain of command or the broader organization, it's very very hard for the organization to win that person back and to regain trust because you start to see that distrust in everything that happens. So somebody can say something totally innocuous, but you're going to, based on what you're going through, you're going to start to read things into it. Um, and I don't think, you know, after being medically accommodated, if I had, if I had fought like hell and pushed it and, you know, 10 years later got approved to stay in, well, by the time you do that, you've missed out on training. Everybody's yeah. passed you anyway. You haven't gone ahead. And really what you've done is embrace a very bitter experience. So I like to believe that you learn something out of every experience, whether it's good or bad, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you just don't always see what it is you learned right away. <laughs> you know, oh, it takes totally some, true. it's hard. Yeah. Um, and like even today, you said something, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, that's connected, right?" Like right. you don't always see it yourself. Like yeah. sometimes you have to be hit on the head with a two by four to understand it was a good thing. Um, not that I advocate hitting anyone with a two by four, <laughs> but you know, sometimes we can be really blind to our own situations and not see where the benefit is. So, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, what you're describing to me is, you know, a very positive mindset where you are looking now at, you know, what are the the positive outcomes? And it, I imagine takes, um, it takes some people, you know, some therapy and a lot of work to get to that point, depending on, you know, what their, their experience has been. I know I tend to be on the more positive side and I have learned <laughs> through, through some friends and some, you know, hardships that they've had that that is, you know, not always the case for everybody. Yeah. And like, it's hard, right? Like when, when you left the military, what was your plan? Like, why did you leave? Sorry, I know oh, you're interviewing no, no. me, but... No, it's totally it's a discussion, fine. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's a discussion. It is a, it's a conversation. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So when I left, I had wanted to do a master's degree. And so I had applied as a lieutenant, you know, Air Force lieutenant, not Navy. So, yeah. you know, it was a little junior. Um and we I did call, get we call those we call those hey you lieutenants. <laughs> and hey you captains. <laughs> anyway, as an aside. <laughs> yeah. So I um so I got shortlisted, which was fantastic. So, you know, that sort of told me that the next time I applied, I'd I'd probably be selected. Yeah. And the next year, only RMC was offering the masters that I wanted to take and I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to get mm -hmm. a broader experience, you know, in my education. And so I, I'd, I'd started at Dalhousie part time because I was living mm -hmm. in Halifax. Didn't really enjoy working and doing school full time. Um, found it a bit too much. I and, can't uh, even imagine. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to leave and do this full time. And it was 1999. Oh. And so Y2K was on the horizon, threats of like us having to, even if we signed up for the supplemental reserve, having to be called back to duty. And so I was oh, like, well, I, I guess that. I'm going to, yep. 
I'm going to make a full sever. And, um, and, you know, to be fair at the time I was, I was engaged. Yeah. I was engaged to my husband and he was not loving, um, the Navy logistics life. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and so his plan was to finish his, his short service engagement to the start of his 12th year. So he had two more years to do and I could finish my school in that time. And then we were going to move to Toronto. And, um, so it was sort of my original plan had, had been come in, stay for five years, get the experience and go to work as an engineer. Um, my, once I was in, I was like, Oh, I could see myself doing this, um, forever. And then, you know, the circumstances sort of were like, well, mm-hmm. you can, you can wait for your master's or you can get out and do it now. And I was like, eh, this feels like a sign. So I'm going to get out. And wow. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because to your point of like, when you look back, like, there was something that was happening at work and someone said to me, well, you don't really have a a problem with like taking big leaps. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, like you've left the military to go to school. Like you had no job lined up. And I was like, (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) I mean, I did have, I did have a very supportive uh, partner and, you know, who was still earning an income. So it wasn't, you know, completely, you know, it's not like I didn't have a a bit of a safety net. Um, But I think I just, I think I developed a trust in myself a long, a long time ago that I guess to, Mm -hmm. to quote Glennon Doyle, I can do hard things. (laughs) Now um, I'll maybe uh, turn us back around. You've talked quite a bit about mentoring um, in terms of some of the mentorship you've been doing now and Mm -hmm. and lately. What about during your career, both in D&D as military member and as a civilian, I'm sort of curious, you know, you're, you know, a little bit ahead of me. How did you find, you know, did you get much mentorship in the way of female mentorship or was it, or did you get any at all? Very little, very little. I think there were very few senior women in the military when I joined. Um, There were a few, there was um, one in particular but I mean, that was that was one one person, and she really championed, um, you know, involved in the in the trials and to open up non traditional employment for women. But she was one person; she didn't work with us. They would parade her out, and you know, it did feel like that. I'm sure mm-hmm. she wanted to go and talk to people, but she was, you know, sort of had a spotlight on her. So, mm-hmm. like, if she came to town. We'd all be told, oh, all the women officers should go talk to her. You know, there wasn't this understanding that right. um, a, a senior woman officer could actually have words of wisdom for everybody, you know? Um, oh, wow. I didn't even so catch it was, that nuance. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So it was sort of a weird thing that, like, if she came to town or if she was going to give a briefing, you know, even some of the senior people who were male wouldn't attend. Like there was this weird. Right. So talk about there again, change management. Hey. Yeah. And um, so, you know, people like that weren't really, you know, I think I had several good mentors, but they weren't women. Um, and we were also, I think the frame of mind then was more on everybody needs to be the same right? Yes. You need to belong. So why would you want a woman mentor? You should, you know, just take whatever mentor you have. Let's, right. Because we went from one extreme 
where, you know, we had to put a brackets W after our rank. So that. What? I did not know that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you didn't have that, like the worst thing ever, well, not the worst thing, I'm sure, but say you got course loaded and they forgot to put the brackets W after your name, you could get roomed with somebody else. So they would do that, right? But it an administrative administrative thing that was really supposed to just be about logistics that ends up identifying you separately. It was identifying. I remember I've told this to a few people and they were like, seriously? And I said, oh yeah. So you know that that went away during my time in the military too. So you know that that mindset, right? I've had many good mentors throughout my career. None of them were women. I've worked Mm. with some wonderful women and I've had a wonderful two wonderful women bosses, but I myself wasn't mentored by them. Um, or And I didn't reach out for a mentor either myself. Right. So right. I had, I would say, um, I had informal mentoring from, from people who were, you know, former bosses that I became closer to and we developed that kind of a long-term relationship that mentoring really is. Um, I participated in the D&D mentoring program. And I don't know if that still exists, but it was a formal mentoring program and they had a website and you applied and had to sign, you know, conduct statements. It was very formal. And um, I did mentor um, both somebody in the military and a staff member of my unit, not my own section. And those two individuals became mentors to me in a mm-hmm. way. It was a very reciprocal arrangement. Um so I, you know, and I think that's, well, I think you learn from everybody, right? Like, yeah. but those relationships became, were, are longstanding and same as um, my relationships with a few bosses where, you know, I know I can call either of those people anytime and, right. and say, um, can I pass something by you or, oh, and by the way, you know, have you ever thought of this? You know, it, it sort of goes both ways. And, but I saw so I saw this really neat thing online, and I'm going to open this now. So what it says is, let's teach our girls that sometimes the fastest way to the top is by reaching for the woman's hand behind us and pulling her up too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really resonated with me in so many ways. I wasn't able to have a lot of those um those kinds of connections during my time in the military. I had some, but not not a lot. So I feel in a way like some of the work I'm doing now as a volunteer, I'm 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 trying to do that now. Yeah. Um, that's sort of a feel-good thing for me. And to develop those relationships. And um it helps me understand too what is current, what the current issues are. Yeah. Um, in general. Um, because I mean I have to face it. You know, I'm almost 60. So, you know, I, I am I am one of those old ex-cadets just about, right? And <laughs> it feels hard to believe that that much time has gone by, but it has. And, you know, for instance, as chair of the Alumni Association, I was always often asked, like, what's going on at the colleges now? Is what you read in the papers true? Is this, is that, right? What's right. going on? Well, how do I know, right? I'm only the expert on what happened when I was there, and even then, I'm only really the expert on my own situation, right? Right. The the experts on what's going on at the college are 
the the staff at the college, right? Whether it's the college chief or the training wing chief or the the squadron commanders, they're the ones who know what's going on today. Do the they faculty. even more so than the cadets? I would feel like the cadets are the ones <laughs> that really well, know. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, first of all, it's bigger than when mm-hmm. we were there. So that's a challenge. But there there's so many ways to get information these days, right? Mm. I think of the faculty um, in particular, like a lot of the faculty, as they always have, become close to the officer cadets. Well, yeah. in my day and age, it meant that maybe you had a coffee or maybe you got invited to their house for dinner. Well, in this day and age, they're all connected on social media. So like right. the profs and the kids, like they're communicating on Messenger, right? So it's very different yeah. than when we were there. True. And um, very, very different. And trying to understand that and... It's too easy to walk through the college grounds and say, oh, there's an officer carrying a coffee cup, you know, a travel mug on their way to class, So, you know, in the right hand so they don't have to salute. Oh, things must be falling apart, right? Therefore, (laughs) so you hear those kinds of comments, you know, trying to understand what's truly going on at the colleges, which is wonderful. There's wonderful stuff going on. And so that, you know, you can then, so that I then can reach behind me and grab the hand of a woman behind me has been a learning process. So, you know, I I had actually hoped to um, volunteer to be a mentor this year. And I think there's four of us who are, as I mentioned, who are not faculty and three guys and me. And none of us said we were willing or willing or ready to be a mentor. It was either time constraints or quite frankly, like in my case, I just feel I'm too new, too newly involved with the Resilience Plus program to offer to mentor through that mm. program. Like I have to make sure I fully understand the program before yeah. I I do it. But you know, you you also reach, I think you reach behind you and grab somebody's hand and pull them up also when you're supervising their project. I'm supervising another project. The first one's done, you know, a a group of uh, three officer cadets um, on something that's going to carry on throughout the whole school year and having those initial meetings and getting them to the point where one of them will sort of take over and run the meetings and I can just sort of watch them and offer little bits of advice. It's all part of it, right? I think that's awesome. I, 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 what was What was your question again? It was about mentoring and you oh, know yeah. what you've received versus what you're given, and so I think you know I think that's great. Yeah, you know my other my other so I have another mentoring project I'm involved in, which is a project to create a peer support network for groups of veterans who have been I'd say historically undersupported by um, Veterans Affairs after their release. So that project is hopefully getting pretty close. It's called The Burns Way. It's an anonymous online peer-to-peer support program. Um, it will focus on, first on Indigenous veterans and then probably move out to either racialized veterans or veterans who were per, went through the LGBTQ mm-hmm. purge. That, like, I'm, I'm a mentor for that project right now, but one of the reasons I'm a mentor um, is because um, I'm just peer support, because it's a project for peer support. And that's right. another passion of mine, providing informal peer support, um, as opposed to the formal peer support that D&D offers. So, okay. you know, formal formal peer support programs are great, but some people aren't ready for that. 
they're not ready to to talk to anybody. They're not willing to say that they'll call a legion service officer and put in a claim, you know, or that they even need help or assistance. But an informal peer support program, so for instance, a regular coffee hour for veterans mm-hmm. is informal, no pressure, safe place, and provides the opportunity for the peer supporters to then sort of say, if somebody brings up something, say, oh, do you want to talk about that? Or, you know, there's help available for that. Do you want me to steer you to the right resource? Right. And that, you know, somebody will, people will reach out to their peers before they'll reach out to people in positions of authority. Yeah. And because going to your boss will, no matter how great your boss is, for many people, that means you're you're threatening your um, how you um, survive. You know, right. you're threatening your job and your paycheck, right? Yeah. And that culture of people th- knowing that if they reach out, there could be career repercussions, has really prevented some people from reaching out. Particularly, you know, if when they reach out, they don't um, get you know that positive um, positive feedback. Yeah. Uh, response and welcoming, like, I'm sorry you're going through this. Do you want to get help for it? How can we get you help? You know, what's available? Do you want to talk to somebody? Not all fast like that, though, spaced out. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, but somebody who won't even do that will go to a coffee, for instance, and sit mm-hmm. down with a group of people and chit-chat. And eventually they may say, hey, you know, have you, do you ever know anybody that dealt with Veterans Affairs, for instance, I need to put a claim and I don't know how to start, or I need an assessment, I don't know how to start. And so this peer support system or this peer support program is just one more way to get people, honestly, who won't get the help themselves. Right. Either to give them the answers they need so they can go do it or to help them find it. And hopefully, number one, get them the help they need, but number two, divert I would say, less urgent situations away from the medical system, right? Mm. So if if all they need, if not if all they need, but if if what they need is to learn how to deal with VAC or they're having a frustration on an assessment or something, if they can get the advice they need to resolve that situation or where to get the help, it it saves a trip to the doctor, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, so there there's that aspect but there's also the aspect that in an anonymous peer-to-peer interaction, and it, it'll be in multiple languages, by the way, more than French and English, hmm. in, in this kind of environment, knowing that you can talk to somebody and that that person is trained, obviously, to react to any any um, signs of distress or impending right. distress, but that person can also... You know, sometimes you just need to to call and say, hey, did this ever happen to you? And, you know, what do I do? You know, right. what did you do? And do it without any commitment to giving somebody your name or your phone number. And sometimes that's what people need because they need to know that uh, they're safe to ask those questions. And if they don't right. have a safe spot at work or they don't have it within their family or within their their group of friends, it'll give them that place. And hopefully it just gets people who haven't sought help in the past through to make that first step right. in a non-judgmental, non-threatening environment. Get the help, take the first step. Um, and you can probably tell I'm super passionate about this project. 
I'm impressed. It's the first time I had a briefing on it. The first briefing was almost three and a half years ago. And oh, wow. it's taken it's taken a while, right? Mm-hmm. It's taken a while to get to this point, um, mostly because of just developing it and developing the concept, finding supporters um, yeah. within the veteran group. So, you know, finding supporters within the veteran world to be willing to put their stamp on it. So, and then, of course, because the first group is, is Indigenous veterans, um, having that consultation within Indigenous governance levels to brief it, talk about how it could happen, incorporate you know, all sorts of different input into the program. And, you know, the it is, it's the project's named the Burns Way after Mr. Burns, who was a veteran at the James Smith Cree Nation, who lost his life a year ago in September and um, during the shooting rampage. And um, it was, we were already um, in discussions with the, with the Saskatchewan First Nations Veterans Association. Um, and that's where our target group was, and he was part of that group as a veteran. So his oh, wow. family has allowed us to lend his name, and he was a veteran who um, sort of embodied, I would say, the spirit of helping other veterans and peer support. Um, so, like, I just, to me, peer support, mentoring, coaching, it all comes down to um, learning from the people before you. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, that hand back, and you, and right. you learn from the hand back as well. It's wonderful. And, you know, I just want to say, like, I know, I know this podcast is focused on women, but, you know, some of the, the best bosses I've had, to be fair, I, there weren't a lot of women there in those yeah. roles at the time. But, you know, I've had fabulous bosses who are such great allies of mm-hmm. women and have supported women. And I've been extremely, you know, well supported by bosses throughout my career. And supported to do things like go on my MBA and things like that. So, you know, I don't want to sound as though I'm not grateful for the support I did get because, you know, two of those bosses who have become great friends and we have this reciprocal arrangement are actually on the Alumni Association Board of Directors with me. You know, they're also ex-cadets. So despite that surreal feeling when you have two former you know, ADM level bosses sitting on the board <laughs> that you're cheering. Like, you know, um, although it was remarked by one of them that I seem to get over any concerns I might have about that rather rapidly. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I was like, stop it now. Um, so, you know, it, it's been, it's surreal, but that speaks to the, I think, to the strength of the bonds and the strength of the relationships we built through mentoring and peer support. And, to know that those two in particular, but, you know, the other board members, you know, so we're talking about board members who are almost all ex-cadets except for one independent. They're all ex-cadets, so they're all, you know, they're all my peers in ways that we all went through mill talk call together. It might not be the yeah. same year, but we all have that common experience. And it's it, it's always amazing to me that you can take people who went to different colleges in different decades and then there's always aspects of the experience that's the same, regardless yeah. of their gender or or Army, Navy, Air Force. Like, there's always aspects. And there's always things that people will say, and you know exactly what they're going to tell you because it's, it's part of the culture, right? Can you give our listeners some advice 
Um, and it can be, you know, just general advice. It can be mm-hmm. about, you know, um, career transition. It can be about volunteering, um, any, anything that, that speaks to you. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So what I would say is for the younger listeners. We have a few. Yep. Um, for the younger listeners. And, and I know, I know that, um, a lot of my resilience ladies will listen to this. For God's sakes, learn how to manage your money. I know that sounds stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> that's it's good like, advice. But, yeah. You know, before you buy a car, like like make a plan, right? A financial plan is no different than any other plan. You're learning how to make plans. Learn learn how to figure out your finances. Um, so that when you graduate, so when you graduate, um, you you have uh, some organization around buying groceries if 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 you're in a posting right away and not mm-hmm. in a base environment people people get themselves into difficult situations you know buy a couple of cars get married buy a dog and next thing you know you're deployed right so right. you know all of these things are things we miss when we join the military and you know some of them we get when we go home and we want to create our first home well, mm-hmm. think about what think about what you're doing, and I know you know maybe that's just the accountant in me, but learn how to do that. Don't be that person who has no idea how much money they have in the bank when they go to the store, because you're well paid. And I can tell people, no matter how small they think their um, salary is when they first graduate, before they're fully trained, or you know, it's it's going to be better than the privates and corporals and master corporals around them. So there's that piece. On the less how you run your life, I would say be approachable. Don't be afraid to either start a conversation or be on the receiving end of somebody wanting to have a conversation. And along with that, I would say don't be afraid to have hard conversations. So whether it's telling somebody that their performance isn't up to snuff as opposed to just telling them they got an average assessment like like right. give people legitimate feedback have those difficult discussions and those difficult discussions can range from saying you know I'm here with the padre to tell you that somebody in your family passed away to right. one of your coworkers has, has complained that you have body odor like come on buddy you're handling food you have to have a shower before you come to work not say it like that, but, you know, or sitting down with somebody and saying your performance was acceptable or what you did in that town hall meeting was unacceptable or, you know, depending on where you're deployed, why this wasn't acceptable. Sit down and tell people instead of what I have seen happen sometimes is starting to ostracize somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of telling somebody they did something wrong, they just all of a sudden become not so much part of the in-group. and then. Right. They start to feel, you know, I don't think you should ever have somebody come to you as a leader and say, you seem to be acting differently towards me these days as there's something I need to know, right? Like right. you as a leader should take the initiative and say, hey, Amanda, like we talked on that podcast and um, when we were doing it, I saw that you weren't paying attention. Like is something the matter? And right. not, Amanda, you didn't do it right. So two extra duties for you. Yeah, yeah. Amanda, what's the matter? 
Right. I mean, if man, Amanda went out and got drunk last night and she was hung over and not prepared for duty, yeah, she can get two extra duties. But yeah. maybe, you know, maybe Amanda didn't sleep well because um, her mother she was watching cancer. F1. <laughs> yeah, or she was up late watching those channels on the internet. Yeah. But, you know, not just being approachable, but be a human being. Okay. Yeah. Don't be an elitist. Be a human being. And that doesn't mean calling people by their first name. It means caring about people. Yeah. And, you know, I don't care about first names, but calling, being buddy-buddy doesn't work any better as a boss Mm -hmm. than it does as a parent, I would say. So you can be close. You can be participating in the same base team together. But don't be afraid to, to be the boss when it's needed. You know, I don't know. You don't have anything to prove, right? Yeah. You don't have anything to prove. By virtue of the fact that you've got a commission, just be yourself and and let people see who you are. And I don't know. I think that's fantastic advice, Jill. I uh, I really do. And I think it goes back to, you know, what you were saying a little bit earlier was like when we were, when we were originally in the military, it was about assimilation. Now it, I feel it's a lot more about integration. And when you integrate, you're integrating your whole self, which means you really can be yourself. And I think mm-hmm. when people can be themselves and they can be their full selves at work, um, it's uh, everybody wins. Like the, the I, person, the organization, and the people that, that they work with. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. I wish we had worked together sometime because I think we would have enjoyed, we probably would have had a lot of fun. And so, I think you know, so that's, too. <laughs> that's my last piece of advice, right? Like the military is very serious and it's, um, you know, every job is, has risks built into it. You know, even being in a dockyard is risky. There's lots of moving equipment and all sorts of things, you know. But you can be serious and also have fun at the same time. And yeah, you know, there's a time and place for everything. But don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to, don't be in your office answering emails when the rest of the office is outside playing soccer or the unit. Yeah. You know, be there, be approachable. Ah, it's fantastic advice. Thank you so and, much for and oh. reach and reach behind and you reach behind and, and grab the hand of of a woman, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jill, for uh, for joining us today on the WMN Canada podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me, Amanda. I'm glad we did this and um, keep in touch. And I'll just add, if anybody wants to ever get a hold of me. Um, Amanda has my contact info and yeah, anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. Check out our new website at wmncanada.ca to find links to all our previous seasons and episodes. We've also added a blog where we'll keep you updated on upcoming news and events and give you a chance to leave comments about each episode. For links to websites mentioned on today's episode, please go to the episode notes page under Season 4 and check out the episode number. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please send an email through the Be A Guest link on the top of our website. Thanks for listening.